Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden has marked his first year in office with an uncertain legislative legacy as two of his own senators, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, again joined Republicans to deliver a blow to his legislative priorities, a crisis continues to brew in Ukraine and low popularity ratings uh, confront him as additional members of his own party decide against running for re-election, including Jim Langevin, the highly respected Democrat from Rhode Island, who is the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee on Cyber Innovative Technologies and Information Systems. Uh, In Ukraine, the international community is waiting for Russia, undeterred by global pressure, as it prepares to invade. Uh, China and Russia have come together uh, last week blocking a U.S. move in the United Nations to sanction North Korean officials. This as the North Koreans uh, make clear that they're going to get back to uh, testing uh, weaponry. Uh, This all also happens as Beijing faces new challenges, including hard clampdowns in the wake of COVID outbreaks that are likely to further impact and exacerbate global supply chains but more significantly collapsing demographics stemming from the country's one-child policy and a financial crisis that's prompt leaders uh, to cut civil servants' pay and perks by a third. Joining us today with a look at all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, our very own producer, Chris Cervello, uh, who is a retired United States Navy uh, public affairs officer and one of the co-founders of the ProVision Advisors PR firm, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is affiliated with the Center for a New American Security and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dove Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, thanks very much for uh, joining us. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And be sure to catch up from our interviews last week. Uh, at the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium, where our coverage was sponsored, where our coverage was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and Raytheon Missiles and Defense. Aside from our interviews, check out uh, the Cavus Ships podcast that is hosted by Chris Cervello and our contributing editor Chris Cavus, uh, who took their uh, weekly podcast daily uh, for uh, to cover the show. And also check out the downlink with our contributing editor Laura Winter who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Uh, With all that, everybody, thanks very much again for joining us. Michael, as you always do, start us off, right? No big surprises. Without Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, uh, Democrats failed to pass uh, filibuster reform and so uh, voting rights uh, reform, which is obviously a priority. Build Back Better is on uh, life support, even though the president has been talking about uh, maybe going a little bit less FDR and a little bit more LBJ and driving his legislative priorities uh, forward, even though I think that that is likely to be impossible because Republicans smell blood in the water, see blood in the water, taste blood in the water, uh, and and probably have little incentive to deliver any victory. Uh, you know, as a Republican a long time ago told me, fighting against mass mandates is, is, is great because COVID then is a gift that keeps on giving. Um, walk us through where we are right now, what all of this means with uh, the Build Back Better uh, initiative, uh, and more importantly for uh, the omnibus, right, because folks are looking to try to get a full year appropriations. Okay, well, as you, you know, correctly pointed out, um, you know, the, the voting rights and filibuster reform uh, failed uh, to pass the Senate this week, and, and that was really because the senators, the Democratic senators, decided to fight a fight that there was never any clear strategy to win. Uh, and so that was that outcome was not a surprise. But I know we're going to talk about the president's press conference later in this program. But uh, there was one surprise, uh, I think, during the press conference when it came to voting rights. I mean, the, the president was asked about the, the Democrats failure in, in passing that package. And uh, the president gave a, an answer that was reminiscent of uh, Donald Trump when uh, he was asked, you know, do you believe that the upcoming election will be fairly conducted and its results will be legitimate? And Biden said, oh, yeah, I think it could. Uh, easily be illegitimate. Uh, so that was a surprising answer and disappointing gets back to what we talked about last week that the president, I think, is not living up to what I think a lot of people voted for him for to be that healer in chief and that uniter uh, in chief. If, now, if, also- I, if I, if I mm-hmm. may, though, right, I mean, mm-hmm. the Republican states uh, that Donald Trump uh, lost are moving to do a whole bunch of, of voting restrictions in order to help their side, right? I mean, so for what it's worth, 
that's where the president is coming from, right? And that, the reason why everybody wants uh, the voting rights legislation, or at least the Democratic side wants it, is so that states can't enact um, legislation that actually limits or undermines the franchise, right? I mean, Ron DeSantis, you're in Florida now, uh, wants uh, election security police, even though there's no evidence at all that there is any security problem with elections. Right. But uh, not to belabor the point, but, you know, the, the, the concept of illegitimacy, you know, connotes that there are ballots that are not being counted or that there were fraudulent votes being cast. And that's really not the debate that, that's going on right now. So I just think it was a, a, a poorly worded answer to that question at a time where people are arguing that our democracy you know, is fragile. And again, I think the Democrats need to start focusing on fights that they can win, not fights that they can lose, and also focus on the things that they have won. And again, the, the president did talk again about the Build Back Better Act, which you know most people believe is dead on the Hill. And he talked about dividing it up into chunks, uh, which is, again, very problematic. Several Democratic members have approached the speaker over the last several weeks, encouraging her to do that. And she's kind of kept that at bay because that's a, a big problem. You know, Build Back Better um, is, is also taking a lot of the oxygen out of the room when it comes to the omnibus, which is critically important to both parties and to the country. And Senator Shelby actually commented on that after the press conference that he was concerned uh, that this could disrupt the omnibus negotiations. And Pelosi even came out saying that chunks is an interesting word. You know, and she said that she still envisions the package as a single bill because this is trying to be done through reconciliation. And people that talk about dividing it up, she says, don't really understand the process. And remember, if they do that, they have to go through the committee process. And there's no way that that's going to get done. And in addition, the Democrats, many of them are, are, are threatening to tank it, again, if there is no SALT provision included in uh, one of these Build Back Better um, bills, if they are able to put that together. So the Democrats have problems amongst themselves. I wouldn't necessarily just blame the Republicans on that. And I also do believe that the Republicans many were supportive of the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Republicans want to pass an omnibus uh, appropriations bill. And as we talked about last week, that the, you know, the four corners did have a discussion. And earlier this week, uh, Chairwoman Rosa DeLauro uh, assured everybody that those discussions are still uh, continuing and the staff is still talking and that they still plan to get something done by uh, February 18th. Uh, Steady Hoyer came out uh, very optimistic and Senator Tester, who is the chair of defense appropriations in the House, uh, came out very uh, optimistic that uh, they will get something done by the 18th. I personally don't think it'll be done by the 18th, but I think it'll be done uh, sometime shortly thereafter. And that's something that I think at the, in the end, both parties will come around to supporting because uh, it's the best interest of the country. And actually, Nancy Pelosi put out a dear colleague this morning uh, to, to the members of her conference to talk about the legislative agenda. And she stressed the importance of passing this omnibus. Right, that has critical priorities for the country. She talked about the importance for national security as well as our communities at home. So uh, I think that they're driving in the right direction. Uh, Jim Langevin uh, shocked everybody by, by announcing his retirement. Texas Democratic Representative Henry Cuellar is under an investigation by the FBI. FBI. What does all this mean? It means big, has big implications for both the House Armed Services Committee and the House Defense Appropriations Subcommittee. First, you know, Langevin's retirement was a major surprise, and he's a a big loss uh, to the Congress because he was also seen as an expert when it came to uh, <clears throat> cybersecurity uh, and intelligence matters. And uh, you know, a guy who was very thoughtful, had very sharp staff, um, and you know, very engaged in the process. So that's that's going to be a big loss. But you know, it, with his retirement, it means he will no longer chair the subcommittee you mentioned. But also, uh, Jackie Speer announced her retirement several weeks ago, and she chairs the personnel subcommittee. And now Congressman Cooper from Tennessee, who chairs the Strategic Forces Subcommittee, his new district in Tennessee is going to be very difficult for him to hold on to. So it's very possible that three of the chair uh, subcommittee chairs on armed services will not be returning to Congress next year. And, you know, if uh, they go in seniority, which they tend to do, the next three people in line uh, for chairmanships are going to be Seth Moulton, uh, Salud Carbajal, and then Ro Khanna uh, could possibly have a subcommittee on armed services. Uh, now, in the uh, uh, on the appropriations committee, uh, this you know we don't really know what this whole investigation is really about yet. There was a story earlier today that said that it, there could be links to uh, Azerbaijan and the Azerbaijan lobbying efforts here in town. But you know it's never a good thing when a when a Republican or when a when a uh, congressman's house is raided by the FBI. So this and he has a very hard time winning his primary. So if for some reason Cuellar did not return to Congress because of this uh, this investigation, that would mean five of the 10 members of the defense subcommittee on appropriations in the house would not be returning to Congress next year because four of them are already announced their retirement. 
So either way, we're going to see big shakeups, a lot of new faces when it comes to defense in next year's Congress. Um, I, I should point out, it's not good for the FBI to raid anybody's house, not just a member of Congress. <laughs> True. Just, just, to, just, to, just to point that out. Um, um, I, there is uh, so much I, I want to uh, discuss, but I'm also very, very cognizant uh, that Jim uh, Townsend is on a very short leash. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to change. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask uh, Chris Cervello to join us very, very briefly for, you know, your sort of the broader uh, analysis of the president's remarks. And then everybody can dive into them because I want to get to uh, Ukraine, obviously, Russia and Ukraine. And what do we uh, do next today? Uh, there were inconclusive talks uh, in uh, Geneva between the U.S. And, and the and the Russian side. Chris, really uh, quickly, right? Um, the president, I want to get your uh, take on uh, the president's remarks, right? I mean, there was a lot of criticism. We've returned back to, uh, you know, looking at uh, fine uh, language. Um, and, you know, the president is a candid, thoughtful guy uh, and, and sometimes tries to be a little bit more uh, nuanced. I think everybody knew that there were disagreements within the NATO side that we're all trying to patch up, uh, but, you know, made, made a statement that he had to eventually walk back, which is one of the things that he does, uh, which is, um, that, you know, w w w we would not have a graduated response, although I think um, a lot of people would say that you do have graduated responses in international uh, community, right? I mean, if it's a limited incursion, it's a different thing than if Putin goes all the way to Kiev, which I think is what he's going to do for no other reason than to show everybody that he's strong and, and they're weak. As a professional PR guy and as a longtime observer of senior level messaging, what was your view of the president's comments and what is a reset button he has to hit in the next year if he wants to get his agenda and his messaging right at a time when his popularity rating is no better than Donald Trump's at this point? Sure. And and I'll be quick, um, just given all that you have to discuss. I, I gave the president a C plus for his uh, his press conference. Um, you, you know, as you said, President Biden is known for being uns unscripted. He is thoughtful. He is nuanced. But that doesn't really fit for a, you know, 110, 115 minute press conference. And so that his style doesn't fit, you know, the rapid fire human clickbait, uh, you know, type uh, questioning that he gets from the press corps. And, and so I, I thought that setting him up to do two hours of uh, unscripted questions with the press corps at a time when Russia is about to invade Ukraine, when you had a, a defeat on the uh, voting rights bill, um, and you have all of these things going on, unscripted may not be where you want uh, want to take your, your leader. You got to play to the, the boss's strengths. Um, so, you know, they, as they move forward, they may want to look at shorter engagements, um, out of DC engagements and play to the president's strengths rather than setting him up uh, for, for failure. Can't have one without the other. So, I mean, if, if Biden gets a C plus, I think you got to look at the press corps and say they get a D plus. As I mentioned, I mean, it's turned into human, uh, it's turned into human click clickbait. And it, it didn't make for a good conversation between uh, the president and, and ultimately the American people. Um, they're uh, shooting for ratings, which is, you know, no, uh, no headline here for your audience. But uh, again, the, the White House and the, and the president's advisor should have known that and, and maybe should have made this 30 minutes instead of a, a 110 minutes. So again, moving forward, get them out of DC, do more engaging on single issues, um, not on this, you, you know, everything under the sun. So that um, you know, you can use the unscripted, thoughtful, nuanced Biden uh, to his uh, to his own advantage. Unless that happens, unless they kind of change and make these engagements more successful, um, as the Democrats seek to say more as we head towards the midterms, and the Republicans say less, you're going to have Biden working against you instead of working for you, uh, which is where I think uh, you know Democrats and ultimately really the country wants uh, the president to be. Three, two, one. Uh, and and certainly as uh, as Michael put it right, don't don't pick fights that you can't win, right? I mean, hoping that you're going to uh, you know overturn uh, the filibuster is not going to work when uh, two of the fifty senators you need to do that have already told you I'm not going to vote for that, right? I mean, so why are you wrapping yourself around the axle uh, on all of these things? And 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 you you fundamentally have to change your approach, right? I mean, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. And hoping for a different outcome, uh, well, Jim. Just let me let me just add one point. I mean, I think sure. that that's very important on the filibuster. But I mean, to what I know will be Dove and probably um, you, you know the other guests' point. Um, the one area where you had to get it right, where you couldn't 
make a mistake was on Ukraine. And, and they made that mistake. And because they had to get it right and didn't, it was amplified all over the world. Uh, and they're going to spend days, weeks, and maybe longer trying to uh, you know fix that. So again, setting him up to do 110 minutes is just not smart. Jim, uh, that's where uh, this is where you come in. Um, where are we now? Where do we go? Right. I mean, there are divisions uh, within NATO. Uh, the administration is getting criticized, right, for not being tough enough on Germany and and having been accommodationist on Nord Stream, uh, even though it looks like the German position may not be changing. There are always divisions on NATO. Uh, folks on the east uh, want stuff that's more muscular, which may defy reality. Um, everybody has personnel in Ukraine, including the United States and including our NATO allies and partners, especially those from the East. But those are not combat forces. And in the event that the Russians come in, it's unlikely that they're going to start shooting uh, at Russians unless Russians start shooting at them. And the Russians are kind of clever at how they do this. Um, how, where, where are we? Where is this going? And what can the United States and its allies reasonably do? Because after you know, 15 years of not, not to make this sound like last week's question to you, uh, right? I mean, the, the Russians are not deterred and and seems like they're going to do what they're going to do for reasons that they're going to do it, right? Well, that's right, uh, Vago. You know, I think you've laid out a lot of reasons why uh, we're in a place of great vulnerability when it comes to mistakes and miscalculation uh, and misreading of one another. Um, If, uh, and we can talk about this in a minute, but if uh, the diplomacy fails, and it looks like this is a Hail Mary today, there's a meeting between Lavrov and Blinken. I'm not sure what new will be put on the table between the two that might lead to a further walk down the diplomatic route. I just don't, I just don't see what that would be. But by the end of today, we'll know. And if the, the diplomatic side is, is, is over and we're going to now face uh, a timetable dictated by Putin in terms of what he's going to do, uh, you know, with this military, um, we enter into this time of, of great uh, instability and vulnerability. Uh, you mentioned uh, Americans and, and others in Ukraine right now, whether in Kiev or, or, or trainers out in the field. If, in fact, uh, we're going to see whether it's a big, ugly invasion with all of the assets we see now around Ukraine or it's something else, you know, Putin is full of surprises. He could go in there with something uh, very small or come in there with a big cyber attack or a combination, maybe a little bit of shock and awe. And then he, I mean, there could be a lot of a lot of dishes on the menu that he could serve up. But the thing is, we're going to we will have an American embassy there in Kiev. We're going to have uh, AMSITs there. And so we're going to we're going to find ourselves in a place where there could be um, mistakes made uh, that 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 make this a bigger uh, fire than, than we want it to be. So so it's 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 really anyone's call. This is absolutely unpredictable because the guy in the middle of it, Putin, is unpredictable. He likes to be unpredictable, and we have found ourselves surprised more often than not, like in Syria, uh, we have found ourselves surprised more often than not, and we can't expect. Uh, that we might have a pretty good inkling of what he's going to do because he surprises us all the time. And those that think they know what he's going to do usually are wrong. Let me um, broaden this uh, to the president's comments and whether or not they were as damaging uh, as uh, has been uh, reported. Um, Were they damaging? And as Chris said, is this going to be an unfortunate gift that keeps on giving far longer um, than, than they would like, even, even if, there may have been a kernel of truth associated with that. Right, right. You know, yes, for sure it was damaging yesterday at a minimum because it showed, uh, it it caused a uh, uproar. It caused uh, nations, allies to all of a sudden question the U.S. Like what, 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 you know, what's behind this? Uh, You know, the the kernel that you're talking about. Uh, Is that really where the U.S. is? Is this really going to give us an idea of of what might happen? Should there be a a, a smaller incursion than something big and ugly? Um, Just the, uh, the, the visual here, just the, just what Putin was watching from Moscow as nations tried to figure out what the president was saying and then watching the White House scramble for 24 hours saying, well, now what do you meant to say? Just, it shows a disarray. You know, it shows a uh, it shows that we're not quite as uh, cocksure as we like to come across as being at a time like this. So, yes, yesterday for sure is damaging. Is this going to be continually damaging? 
Um, you know, everything has a shelf life. Uh, and uh, I, I think I, I think over the next few days is going to leave the headlines, uh, if you will. Something will take its place. But the point is that despite leaving the headlines in the minds of Putin, as well as in the minds of the allies, that just it's just another brick in the wall, if you will, of of, you know, being unsure about the U.S., where the U.S. is, what the U.S. might do. Uh, and it's just another, you know, uh, indication that, uh, uh, you know, we're not as consistent as we used to be. We're not as competent in some ways as we used to be. Uh, and so it just makes uh, the unease even greater in the minds of those in capitals in Europe as well as Putin. It just increases that unease uh, at a time like this. Well, let me let me just ask one last uh, question, and then I'm going to uh, go uh, to to Dove Patrick and and bring Chris and uh, Michael back into this. Um, what can the Atlantic Alliance reasonably do? I understand the palpable stress uh, that company uh, that countries on the eastern border uh, of the alliance faces. This sort of sense of we have to be more muscular. Everything is too milk toast. But at the end of the day, nobody wants to fight Russia militarily. And as a consequence, this sort of dichotomy of we have to be muscular comes into the, you know, collides with the reality of where we find the the situation that nobody wants to fight. Um, Ultimately, how do you, you know, so, I mean, you know, basically the NATO alliance exists for Russia not to invade NATO proper. Where, Where does this end up? And does Vladimir Putin actually do the very thing that he claims not to want, which is expand NATO. I mean, is that ultimately what's going to happen with Finland and Sweden potentially joining the alliance? Well, you know, on Finland and Sweden, you know, there's there's been, I think, um, uh, the, the Finns and Swedes right now don't have any intention of joining the alliance for the same reasons we've heard from them for years. There's a lot more pressure on them now and a lot of unease in those capitals watching the Swedes put troops back on Gotland and do all kinds of things to deal with the situation over the past week in the Baltic has uh, been very instructional. I mean, I'm glad to see what they were doing, but it shows the degree of, of, of anxiousness there uh, about what they should do. And I think if they did join, if they, in fact, you know, uh, got the political will to go ahead and join, that's an example of something that we do need to do that we can do is we have to deliver to Putin what he doesn't want. What he doesn't want is to see NATO, in fact, enlarged, whether it's Sweden or Finland. He doesn't want to see a remilitarization of Europe. And we have to give that to him. Uh, And, you know, you're right. We don't No one wants to fight the Russians. Uh, I don't think the Russians want to fight either. I don't think they want to. They like Putin likes to get things for free. He likes to take advantage of our own missteps. He likes to be an opportunist. He's trying to reconstruct uh, the old Russia, if you will, the old Soviet Union. He wants to go back in time, but he doesn't necessarily want to fight a big war with the United States to do it. So I think what we have to do uh, in, is, is we've got to bring the U.S. and NATO force posture in Europe back to what it almost to what it was. I don't think we need to get back to the 1950s, but we but we need to go in there and say, OK, Putin, this is what you've now done. You've got two more new uh, allies, Sweden and Finland, if they were to join. And you've got more armor back in Europe. And uh, you've got in Poland and in the Three Balts and in the Black Sea. You've got maybe a, a carrier strike group that's going to be rotating through all the time. There's a lot of things we can do that present to Putin a, a more uh, powerful uh, uh, military adversary than he had a year ago. Right. So I think I think if we're going to do something and this is the economic and financial sanctions aside, this is just on the military side. We have to make it so that when he opens his window there in the Kremlin and he looks out over Europe, he sees a lot of, of, of military forces that that were not there a year ago. And he finds himself in a position uh, that's not as um, as sure as it was when uh, when we were pulling forces out. And the, the last thing I'll say is the allies are going to have to really step up now. This is in their backyard. We've got China problems in the Pacific. We don't have a bottomless defense budget. The Europeans are going to have to start bringing their armor in as well. 
their combat squadrons in there as well. They have got to shoulder the burden. It can't just be the U.S. But at the end of the day, Putin needs to look out over Western Europe and see a military situation that was very different for him than it was a year ago. Uh, that sounds like a message uh, that you delivered uh, very, very often, Jim, uh, during your eight years uh, in the Obama administration when the White House was trying in, in a little bit of, you know what I mean, allies were misperceiving that as uh, we don't have your back as opposed to we want you to do more, right? So when the pivot was happening and everybody was calling, including Bob Gates going over there uh, and delivering tough love messages, uh, it, it didn't really move the needle. And, and certainly it moved the needle a little bit in the Trump administration. But it, you know what I mean? There was this sense that once the Trump administration uh, ended, that allies would get back to, well, we don't have to do as much. Right. Yeah, I, no one listened to me then and no one's listening to me now. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, we, we, we certainly are, Jim. Thanks, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Dove, uh, you have been very uh, patient, but before I get to you, just a quick word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Join All Domain Command and Control. Uh, Dove, uh, take it away. You've, you've, uh, you know, we're critical with the of the president for his comments on uh, Ukraine. Lots been discussed, and a lot we'd like to get your sense on. Take it away in any direction you want to go. And Patrick, thanks very much for being patient. I'll be with you in just uh, just a second. Go ahead, Dove. Well, I'm, I'm in uh, agreement with a lot of what uh, Jim just said. Uh, the president, as I see it, made two mistakes, big ones on uh, Ukraine, one that's been reported all over the place and the second one that really hasn't. The one that's been reported is what Jim talked about. Uh, and I think the problem uh, is that, uh, and Jim alluded to this, the, the NATO allies haven't gotten over Afghanistan yet. Uh, right. This, you know, that is a story that still has legs six, you know, five months later. Uh, and this is just another, I, I think Jim used the word brick. It's, a, it's another brick on this, this, uh, uh, this edifice that, that really is, is uh, undermining everything we've been trying to do for, you know, for years. Um, this is not going to encourage the allies. Uh, he actually said so himself. He said, well, if it's less than a major incursion, we're going to have trouble getting our allies together. And the all the statements and, and walking back of that, of what he said, didn't really address that because it seems to me it's going to be that much harder to get the Germans to agree on Nord Stream 2. They might move, but I'm not sure they will if it's less than an all-out attack. Now, I don't think it will be an all-out attack. I don't think Putin needs that. I think he can continue to salami slice Ukraine. Uh, he can take Mariupol, which is uh, 20 kilometers from uh, the Donetsk part that's uh, already uh, controlled by pro-Russian uh, separatists. He might even take Odessa, which gives him pretty much the northern uh, Black Sea. He doesn't have to take Kiev and take on a guerrilla war. He can continue to do the salami slicing. He can uh, basically follow Hitler's uh, uh, script on Czechoslovakia. Hitler took the Sudetenland and said, oh, I'm going to stop here. And everybody breathed a sigh of relief. And then, of course, he takes the whole thing. So uh, if he does that, I don't know that Nord Stream 2 is cut off. I don't know where the NATO allies come out on this. They, Like, I, like I've said, they, they are definitely uneasy. The eastern ones, of course, are not. Uh, it looks like uh, some of the Eastern uh, allies are going to ship stingers to uh, to Ukraine. Uh, we won't do it, but the, it looks like the president's comfortable with that. Uh, and that's a good thing. But nevertheless, uh, there's a problem here. And the second mistake, the one that wasn't reported, is Biden was negotiating with himself. Why in God's name does he turn around and say, well, if Mr. Putin wants us not to put nukes in Ukraine, well, we can agree to that. The Russians don't agree to anything until the very last second. Why are we doing this? Uh, it seems to me that that uh, there's something wrong with the way the White House is conducting this whole mess. I don't know how it's going to get resolved. But as long as Putin thinks that he's the one who's running the offense and we're running a very porous defense, uh, we've got a problem. Let me just ask one follow-up question on that, uh, Dove. How does the United States have to work with its allies and partners? Because ultimately, right, uh, some allies and partners, uh, right, I mean, so pretty much everybody wants to be very careful with the Russians, in part because the Russians uh, and oligarchs 
again, we're not being serious in terms of how we want to punish them. Uh, they continue to have access to their houses. Uh, folks want to continue to have access to their uh, wealth and their riches. They want to have access to their uh, oil, gas, minerals, what have you. Um, how do, you know, and, and again, there's this dichotomy of muscularity by countries on uh, the eastern uh, front of the alliance and a little bit less muscularity elsewhere. What's the realistic, honest conversation that has to happen within NATO about what's doable and what's not doable? I mean, what, what is achievable and what is not? I don't want to be an accommodationist, but I also want to be realistic. There are things we can do and there are things that we cannot do. It's often best to under-promise and over-deliver rather than over-promise and under-deliver, which is exactly what's happened with the administration. And one of the reasons why the president, you know what I mean? There were these expectations that, you know, unicorns would be poo and rainbows, and that hasn't happened, and people are somewhat crestfallen because of it. Well, I think you're right that uh, we shouldn't overpromise, and we've done that. Uh, I think what we should do is uh, essentially tell our NATO partners, we're going to work with those NATO partners that want to take a harder line, uh, and uh, those that want to take a softer line, uh, we're going to uh, have to deal with them maybe in a way that they don't like. Uh, so, for example, uh, some of the NATO partners don't like the fact that we want to get out of the SWIFT. We want to get the Russians, excuse me, out of the SWIFT international financial exchange thing, which is done in dollars. Well, guess what? We can do that without them. And uh, we can basically tell uh, some of our allies as well that uh, we're going to put sanctions on the Russians, our own sanctions, and then we're going to put secondary sanctions on. And that anybody who wants to deal with the Russians will have the secondary sanctions thrown against them. That's going to be a really tough message in Berlin, by the way. The, uh, we could also say, talk with the British, where there's a lot of Russian money and a R Russian investment, and say, look, Boris Johnson, if you really want to take a hard line against the Russians, this is what you need to do. And you need to go after all those Russian investments in Britain. We actually have quite a few uh, cards that we can play in our hand. We don't have to make it terribly public, uh, but we need to think much more broadly than we are now without the kinds of threats we've made, which uh, the president clearly indicated when he said he's going to have trouble getting NATO together on anything other than a major attack. Um, it, it, that's not what we want to be signaling to the Russians. In fact, the more we talk privately with our allies, and of course, the Russians will know it anyway. Um, the more seriously the Russians will take what we're doing. The more public we are, the less serious they're going to think we are. Uh, Patrick, uh, thanks for being patient. I want to start with the Ukraine question. And obviously, we have a lot to talk about vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, China uh, and Korea and uh, the U.S.-Japan uh, alliance. But I want to I mean, from your standpoint, as somebody who is a global security analyst, right? I mean, your specialty is in Asia Pacific, but I mean, you've, you've kind of... Uh, watch the entire world, including in government and out of government. Um, have we effectively lost Ukraine and are we having trouble coming to grips with it? And what parallels are there between what's happening to Ukraine and what is what may unfortunately end up happening to Taiwan? I talk to more people ultimately. Uh, you know what I mean? People have fight for it. They fight for it until they recognize, well, actually, life might go on perfectly fine without that fight. It's a little bit like the collapse of the British Empire, right? Unimaginable in 1910. Uh, but then by the time you get to 1945, 1948, 1952, 1970, it's sort of, well, you know what, we can have a great life without this empire anyway, right? We'll be fine. The sun will continue to rise, even without, uh, you know, because Ukraine, after all, was in Russia's orbit anyway. Well, Taiwan, it's right off of China's coast anyway. You know, they're effectively Chinese anyway, right? How, what are the parallels between these two things? And have we already lost Ukraine? Or rather, had we already lost Ukraine 10 years ago um, and are just only now coming to grips with what might be a reality? Not to sound too negative at all about this. Mulvaga, where to start on this? If we were serious about wanting to win Ukraine, the transatlantic allies would have done much more to build up the economy of Ukraine um, so that we could have made it a stronger partner. Clearly, Putin thinks 
we've lost Ukraine. He is clearly testing the hypothesis that the 1990s end of the Cold War settlement that went against Russia can be overturned. And he is testing the United States and NATO right now. And that's why, even though I'm all for focusing on the Indo-Pacific and China, I'm first for demonstrating uh, alliance solidarity and strength. And that has to be done here because Russia is not 10 feet tall. It can be deterred from uh, overplaying his hand. You know, Robert Gates, in fact, used that expression today, saying that Putin has already overplayed his hand. And he says that everything uh, Putin does at home and abroad is really rooted in the collapse of, of, of the Soviet Union in 1991. And I agree with that. Um, that's what he's trying to do. He wants to literally um, make sure that the former Warsaw Pact uh, perimeter is a Soviet, a Russian sphere of influence. And those were demands that were made by Sergei Lavrov in Geneva to Tony Blinken today. They were non-starters. They were rejected immediately. But nonetheless, that's what he's putting down in testing. And I agree with all of the earlier comments that Putin would like all of this for free and doesn't really you know, want to fight over it. Uh, he just wants it, but he is willing to. He has all those options and he's made them clear he's willing to use some of those options. And right now, China, North Korea, all of our allies are focused on this. How do I know? Well, listen to the speech that the UK foreign minister, Liz Truss, who may have her sights on uh, 10 Downing Street, by the way, to replace Boris Johnson if he falls, um, you know, the speech she gave at Lowy Institute today, because she's been over there for two plus two, the AUKMEN, uh, Australia, UK ministerial talks uh, as part of the AUKUS, the trilateral US, uh, Australia, UK uh, submarine and advanced technology uh, partnership. Um, and she said that, you know, that liberal democracies must push back on the aggression uh, of China and Russia. And that's what's happening. And Prime Minister Kishida, President Biden, Today, a long conversation, um, a virtual summit, um, and it focused on China, North Korea, Russia. Um, you have uh, allies pushing back, but really they sense that the United States is playing almost a long game when they're losing in the short term. And that's the real problem. In fact, the whole you know, report card on the first year of the Biden administration, the harsh reality, and I'm a supporter of much of what they've tried to do, is that we haven't been able to follow through and implement the real muscle moves, although the quadrilateral security dialogue has been solidified in many ways. And we're trying to get, I think the US is trying to organize the, the finally the two plus two with India here in the next few weeks. COVID has, has sort of held that back. Um, AUKUS is clearly important, but um, what the British and the Australians were talking about this week in Canberra. Uh, is concerned that the U.S. Navy will will undermine and resist that nuclear transfer on the propulsion, um, and if that happens, you would you know go from catastrophe to catastrophe. We would block the French sub deal, and then not deliver it on on nuclear propulsion for Australia. Now, I don't think that is going to happen. I think we're actually going to make sure that this AUKUS partnership becomes stronger and stronger over time. Whatever specifics it leads to, it is going to be a strong relationship. But the world right now in the region thinks that America is lacking in power, uh, in uh, follow through and strength, and it's being tested. I think the Americans have a lot of strength. We saw it this week in the seventh, uh, you know, the seventh fleet actions around the Paracel Islands. It was a very muscular freedom of navigation operation, but it's just a freedom of navigation operation. Um, and meanwhile, China, Russia are looking very big, and North Korea even threatening long-range missile tests and nuclear tests again on the heels of four rapid missile tests already in the month of January. Uh, one of the reasons I uh, editorialized that the astute design was probably the right answer for the Australians was ultimately a concern that naval reactors uh, would have uh, problems uh, um, co cooperating, sharing that uh, advanced uh, technology. And indeed, there's a case to be made why actually French technology would have been better in this case, which is enriched, I think, to only 6% as opposed to ours, which is weapon grade uh, enrichment um, that that yields cores that can last three decades, uh, for, for example. Even And, and the, the professionalism and the precision you need to operate with that. No, it's no criticism to the Australians, but it takes um, many, many years to 
develop the skills to safely operate nuclear warships. Uh, let me ask you, uh, take you to uh, the question of uh, China, what's going on domestically uh, and what that drives, right? I mean, there is a concern that as um, authoritarian countries, uh, by the way, I completely agree that the Russians, um, if you look at it, we have a tendency of lauding what Putin is achieving as opposed to recognizing that he's making gains that actually may be fleeting and really impermanent. Um, so, you know, during the reign of Putin the Great, uh, it may work. But the minute that Putin the Great is not in there, the whole thing comes uh, unhinged. Um, even if he scored some wins in, in that process, to your point, Patrick, right? I mean, it's a, it's a long game and we actually may end up on the uh, on right. the winning side of it, as we have throughout history, uh, where, where democracies have ultimately prevailed in that sort of arc of history. But let me take you to China, the specific problems Xi Jinping is facing, uh, right? I mean, the Olympics are already getting tarnished. Uh, folks either don't want to go and are, you know, all these stories about reporters taking burner phones because they don't want to be followed. Then there are the pandemic restrictions. And oh, by the way, uh, I think one of the most fascinating stories is the one-third pay cut uh, and perk cut that civil servants are taking, uh, which, which is going to be problematic, uh, ultimately, right? I mean, how do all of these things play in to how an authoritarian nation will actually act out in public? Or is this something that is going to cause Xi Jinping to focus a little bit less on Taiwan, more internally, or actually ratchet up the pressure on Taiwan to distract people who are taking a one-third pay cut? Well, we're looking at it through just the Taiwan lens, but uh, clearly there are a lot of actions that China can take that would be antithetical to our interests um, in order to distract from problems. But right now, um, we're two weeks away from the opening ceremony of the Olympics. There is an outbreak of COVID in Beijing where there's a zero COVID tolerance policy, which forces massive lockdowns. Um, and this is two weeks before the start of the Olympics. So clearly, the focus of the Chinese leadership is on trying to make sure they can have a successful uh, or successful enough Olympic uh, ceremony. Um, that papers over the uh, real problems, which is uh, which are focused on the economy, I believe, um, where you've just had the Chinese central banks sort of inter in sort of uh, reduce the benchmark rates for lending. Um, so there, it's government intervention to prop up the economy right now to try to keep things stable enough. Um, and they'll deal with that later after the Olympics, they hope. Um, and then it doesn't help that your, your close Russian uh, friend has just had uh, you know, space debris almost run into one of your satellites uh, thanks to their last November reckless uh, ASAT test. Um, you've got the Americans with their seventh fleet actions around the Paracel Islands. You've got Lithuania you know, wanting to call a Taiwanese representative office rather than Taipei, aggravating China. You know, you have uh, North Korea threatening to go with long range missiles again. Um, and all of this is creating a lot of noise and a lot of instability um, for the Chinese leadership at a time when they really want to focus inward on the successful Olympics, successful party Congress later this year. Um, and it is a huge challenge. Um, and I think uh, it's it's also flies in the face of the younger generation of the Chinese. I mean, this is not my sort of interpretation. This is coming right from Beijing and leading Chinese scholars about the Generation Z problem uh, in China, that if you were born, you know, from the late 90s to the present in China, you really think, and this is a quote, that humankind's universal values such as peace, morality, fairness, and justice are China's inherent traditions. They think that only China is just, while all other countries, especially Western countries, are evil. Um, and, you know, that, that sentiment um, is being um, eroded every day by what's happening, you know, from the Olympics to the international reputation of China. How does that play out? Does that end up playing out against Taiwan because that's what brings it together, that jingoism, that nationalism? Well, maybe. And, you know, all eyes go back to Ukraine. What will Russia do? What will Russia be able to get away with, if anything? The show has already gone along, but there are a couple of questions uh, I've, I've got to ask uh, still. Obviously, it's a big week with a lot to, to discuss on this first year commemorative edition uh, of the Biden presidency. Uh, Michael, how were the president's remarks seen up on the Hill? And is there going to be congressional support for whatever the president does want to do vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia, right? I mean, the most important thing is that the president has the backing of, of lawmakers. Uh, that's been highly problematic over the past many years, unfortunately. Um, how did his comments go over and are lawmakers united in whatever he wants to do vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine? Um, so, look, I, I don't think his <clears throat> press conference went over that 
uh, well on, on Capitol Hill. I mean, I've talked to both Democrats and Republicans, both um, both during uh, and after the press conference was over. Uh, and you know, I think you know Senator Ben Sass, who you know I don't think is considered a, a partisan, uh, really you know came out saying that you know the president projected weakness, not strength. You know, especially when you know when it when it came uh, to Ukraine, uh, and he also hammered the president for his uh, comments on on, on uh, you know election integrity. You know, he basically saying if you're the president of the United States, uh, your job is to affirm public trust in, in our elections. And you know, frankly, you know, I, I agree. But you know, when it comes to you know Russia and Ukraine, I do believe that the, the, the president will have widespread <clears throat> bipartisan support for his actions. Like I think that he'll have some outliers on both sides. I think a lot of the progressives. Um, will buy into the Russian and Chinese talking points. Frankly, I've spoken to some Democrats um, earlier this week that are uh, upset that some of the progressives are, are repeating a lot of the Russian and Chinese talking points. At the same time, you'll see, I think a lot of Republicans also just want to be contrarian, to be uh, just for the sake of being contrarian. I mean, remember there was a, a clip from um, a month or two ago where Tucker Carlson and Mike Turner went at it over Ukraine. Uh, basically, Tucker Carlson saying, why shouldn't we be siding with the Russians over this? I mean, Ronald Reagan's turning over in his grave you know, hearing those kind of comments. Uh, but I think overall that the president will enjoy uh, support when it comes to this important national security issue. Uh, Dove, and uh, give us your quick take on uh, what our Iranian friends are up to and what all of that means. And anything else you want to close uh, the program out with? You get the last word. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, first, uh, I want to follow up on what Mike said about uh, uh, support for the president on Ukraine. Uh, I was told by a senior senator uh, uh, just the other evening that if uh, Ukraine uh, gets invaded by the Russians, then uh, the Menendez legislation, proposed legislation, uh, which would really put tremendous pressure on Nord Stream 2, uh, would pass by 98 to nothing. Uh, that tells you something. I think the president will have complete support uh, on the Hill from uh, for resisting uh, Putin in any way he can. Um, on Iran, I I heard something quite interesting uh, from some mil senior military folks the other day, uh, which was uh, that Iran may agree to this deal simply because they've been bluffing all along. In other words, they never intended to build a nuclear weapon. They, uh, there's a fatwa from Khamenei, the supreme leader, against a nuclear weapon. And so uh, the whole point of this exercise has been all along to get as many sanctions lifted as, as possible, and uh, they're bluffing. And since these are the people who invented chess uh, and probably invented poker, uh, you can't rule <laughs> that out. Uh, I, on the other hand, the biggest headache, quite frankly, and, and we're not focusing enough on that, we do talk about it, uh, uh, the administration does, but not enough, is the real problem is their missile program which can now target anything in the Middle East uh, and which in fact has been targeting Americans uh, through proxies, but nevertheless. Uh, and uh, in addition, just the general trouble that they're causing in the region. Uh, and if you look at uh, how the uh, Houthis uh, attacked the uh, UAE, killed three people there, uh, do you honestly think they could have done that without Iranian support? So uh, the, the whole issue of the nuclear deal, uh, I just worry that we'll say, great, we got this deal and either we'll have been bluffed or uh, even if it, they weren't bluffing, uh, we will still get nowhere with probably the two bigger issues in the region, which is their missile program and their ability to disrupt and undermine uh, our friends and allies in the region. And uh, any any uh, take on uh, any any last thoughts on China or anything else that we discussed? Well, uh, you know, the, there's this new problem with the, that the Chinese are facing in Central Europe. Slovenia just announced that they're going to follow Lithuania's lead. And as you know, we've already mentioned that on this program, the Lithuanians are essentially standing up to the Chinese. They may not have a lot of trade, but now if you add Slovenia with that, uh, the number gets larger in Slovakia, by the way, uh, not to be confused with Slovenia, uh, but Slovakia uh, had a big trade delegation to Taiwan in December, and they're talking about increasing relations too. So uh, the Chinese have to sort of think about that as well on top of all the other concerns that Patrick raised. 
And as we're uh, wrapping this up, uh, New York Times is reporting Saudi-led airstrikes in Yemen killed at least 70 people uh, at a prison and knocked out the country's uh, internet. Uh, Patrick, uh, you're the one who first brought this to our uh, mutual attention, right? Uh, more than 100 wounded, is that correct? That's right. Um, the numbers are going to climb, undoubtedly. This is going to escalate. Uh, Dove, what does this all mean at a time when the administration is debating a new arms export policy uh, that will be more potentially restrictive? Indeed, I mean, it already is on our Asian allies and partners uh, based on their human rights uh, records. What What is this going to mean from a congressional standpoint uh, well, in terms of the Saudis achieving their priorities in Washington? Saudi Arabia is in, has been in Congress's bad books uh, for some time now, uh, because uh, for the obvious reason that, uh, uh, you know, a, an American a, a journalist was killed in the Turkish embassy. Right. And uh, the, the media hasn't let that one go, by the way. Uh, and now I'm, this, I'm not sure it's something that we should easily let go. No, uh, I, I'm not saying course. it should, but it hasn't. I'm simply stating a fact that it has not. And so this uh, attack is simply going to solidify the the anger in Congress that already exists. And I think that Saudi Arabia is going to find that it's going to be very, very hard for uh, for it to get congressional approval for arms exports. Flip side of that, as Dove knows, is that, um, you know, vis-a-vis -vis China, the United States needs uh, Gulf uh, allies and friends. And there's a there's a balance to be made here. But Congress doesn't think that way. And uh if you look at the resolutions that have already passed, uh, it, it's it's not and not only that Saudi Arabia and, and China are talking again. And so it's not even clear that, the, you know, we, we could shore up Saudi Arabia against China, as you know, Patrick. So uh, but but you get this kind of gut reaction on the part of Congress. And once that builds up, it's very, very hard to change. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Um, terrific conversation. Uh, thanks very much for uh, being patient as we covered an enormous amount of ground. Hope you all have a great weekend and a great week and looking forward uh, to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.